0: maybe most of the time, you know, if it's really a call, it's something that's outside of our comfort zone, right? It's calling us to be converted to a whole new way of being. But I think that's not often part of our narrative. I think part of what we need to hear in her story, too, is that this work is the work of communities and groups of people. We don't ever do this alone. You know, we like to tell stories of heroes, and heroes are rugged individualists standing alone, changing the world. And she changed the world, but she didn't do it by standing alone.
1: and welcome to can i get a witness the podcast this podcast is an audio companion to the book can i get a witness 13 peacemakers community builders and agitators for faith and justice i'm shay tuttle in each episode of this podcast i'll talk with one of our authors about the person they profiled for the book and about their writing process today i'm speaking with m Therese lysot M. Therese Lysot is professor of Catholic Moral Theology and Healthcare Ethics at the Neiswanger Institute of Bioethics and Healthcare Leadership, Loyola University Chicago's Stritch School of Medicine, and the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University Chicago. She is the co-editor of On Moral Medicine, Theological Perspectives on Medical Ethics, 3rd edition, published by Erbmanns in 2012, and of Catholic Bioethics and Social Justice, published by Liturgical Press in 2018. For our book, Therese wrote on Mary Stella Simpson. I am so excited to talk to you because I think every time I go back to your chapter, I'm really excited about, and I'm excited about all the chapters, but I think there's something about Sister Mary Stella, I I feel like nobody knows who she is, and I feel like we get to kind of introduce her to the world, and that makes me really excited. So for for people who might not be familiar with her, can you start out by giving a kind of summary of her significance?
0: Sure. So Sister Mary Stella Simpson is both a person in her own right, but she also represents a group of, what are we calling our folks, activists, witnesses, what's the
1: subtitle of the book? Peacemakers, community builders, and agitators. There you go. She represents
0: (laughs) a group of peacemakers, community builders, and agitators uh, for faith and justice that a lot of people don't know about. um, And that would be Catholic women religious, sisters, nuns, you know, people use different phrases to refer to them. But throughout the 20th century, especially in the United States, women religious did enormous work on the ground, often unsung. Uh, in the poorest communities in the United States, working with the poor, for the poor, for social justice, for racial justice, helping care for the sick, for the most marginalized people uh, in our communities. And often people don't know about them. So on the one hand, she represents this entire group of people who was who were doing this work. But she's also a really interesting person in her own right, insofar as she was born a Baptist in the middle of the Midwest hadn't actually met Catholics until she was, I think, 18 or 19. And she was so entranced by, uh, she, she went to nursing school um, and first encountered Catholic sisters um, who were doing their, the work they'd always been doing running uh, hospitals and Catholic health centers. Um, And she, she was so entranced with the work that these women were doing, you know, not paid charitable work living in community working hard leading organizations having a lot of independence and authority at least for the time but she was amazed sort of by the by the grace of their work by their relationships with their patients and the difference that they were making and over a series of years working with these women in catholic healthcare she decided to become a nun which you know for for a, a good baptist girl that's kind of a shocking thing to do and it gave her mother a heart attack. So part of her story is is interesting. Her relationship with her mother as she makes this journey in faith, joins this religious order. She works in Catholic healthcare for a number of years, and she is is just top-notch nurse administrator. She's moving through Catholic hospitals. She's cleaning up the act in all these hospitals because, you know, it's the middle part of the 20th century, and uh, hospitals are emerging, and people are learning how to do things like, you know, hygiene in hospitals and make processes more efficient. She works in OBGYN. And at a pretty late point in her career, maybe 20 years, she'd been working for 20 years or so, her order decides to send her for a little more training as a nurse midwife. uh, And they pack her off to the southwest of the United States. And at first, she's just a little, you know, she takes a little umbrage that, you know, this... She's excellent. She's at the top of her game. How could she possibly need more training? Uh, and she goes uh, for six months uh, out to New Mexico and her life is transformed. She encounters a whole new way of doing OBGYN, of delivering babies, of interfacing with families. She learns about home visits. She, out in you know, kind of the middle of nowhere in New Mexico. She begins to visit women in their homes prior, you know, for prenatal care and then for delivery. And and watching babies be born in those contexts does a couple things for her. One, she really comes to understand, you know, what we now call the social determinants of health and how all these other factors uh, where uh, that affect where people live, their housing, their education, their food, their lack of water, yeah she starts to understand how those are also part of caring for people who are sick, those need to be attended to, but she also begins to understand family relationships in a different way in a way that she had never been able to see in the hospital, so she returns from her year in the desert, we could call it, and she goes back to. You know, being a Catholic hospital nurse administrator, and she institutes she in the United States she introduces for the first time this huge innovation in labor and delivery, namely she allows pushes for fathers to be present in the delivery room with their wives while they're having their baby <laughs> I mean now we think of that as like hasn't it always been that way
1: right, right,
0: but but she was the one who started it, right? This this nun, this obscure person nobody's ever heard of, right? So she becomes hugely evangelical for what she calls family-centered care, transforming how mothers, fathers, families welcome new life into the world and then she goes trotting around the united states you know being evangelical trying to you know convince everybody to do this and people sign on i mean there she doesn't meet actually too much resistance but it was a sea change in how we think about and practice labor and delivery in the united states and this came out of her experience with these poor mostly hispanic families in new mexico so so it's a great story. And that all happens prior to the time that she goes to Mound Bayou, Mississippi in 1967.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. There's, there's so much to her. Um, and a bunch of those things I want to return to as we talk, too. Um, but I'd like to ask about your, your framing of your chapter. You frame your chapter with a story from the book of Exodus in the Hebrew Bible. Can you share, in just in your own words, that story, and then talk a little bit about how you see Sister Mary Stella fitting into that narrative?
0: So there's a couple pieces to this. So first of all, what's the story? So the book of Exodus is primarily about the liberation of the people of Israel from the oppression in Egypt the israelites had been living in egypt for 400 years or so and over time they had become a minority class and had been subjected to harsher and harsher and harsher regimes of uh, socio-economic oppression and exclusion and it was it was really a bad situation you know they were they were crying out to the lord for 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 salvation and you know in in the bible god works in very strange ways you know if i was running the world i would i would never do things the way god does but you know, it's God's story, not mine. <laughs> so in Exodus, the way God decides to free the people of Israel from um, the oppression, particularly of Pharaoh, the leader of, of Egypt, is to send Moses, right? So uh, Exodus is about the story of Moses. But first, Moses has to be born. You know, God God is very slow. God, you know, it takes generally 30, 30 or 40 years for, uh, you know, these salvific types of actions to happen, but Pharaoh is concerned because these Israelites, you know, they're just reproducing like nobody's business, and soon they're going to outnumber the Egyptians, right? So, so Pharaoh decides that he's going to uh, puts out a policy that he's going to kill all the firstborn boys, or I'm sorry, all the baby boys that are born to the Israelite women. As a way of both continuing oppression and reducing the population, but so the story opens with Pharaoh deciding to do this. But at the time, babies were born with midwives, and the Israelite midwives really weren't going to have any part of this. Right. So the story opens with these two midwives, Shipra and Pua, who uh, who confront Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh wants to say, "Why are all these boys being born?" And they're like, "Oh." i'm I'm just so sorry, Pharaoh. Those Israelite women, they just have those babies before we can get there. There's nothing we can do about it. right? So you have this story up front where you where you see this resistance being put put forward by these midwives uh, over against um, male oppression, economic oppression, the oppression of this people. And because of this sort of political resistance, Moses, Is born uh, and and gets hidden away, right? And then uh, gets adopted into the Egyptian family. And over time, he becomes the person who then leads, uh, that God uses to lead the Egyptians to liberation. Now, this story of Exodus has been enormously important for oppressed peoples around the world. More recently, Latin American, uh, Central American, People um, through liberation theology, but prior to that, it was a very important story for enslaved Africans and African Americans in the twentieth, eighteenth, uh, nineteenth, and twentieth centuries in America. This story of an enslaved people oppressed by the regime that God was going to come and liberate them. So this story infuses African American literature, African American spirituals, African American consciousness. And it starts with midwives.
1: Mm -hmm. So you write about how you write about Mary's childhood and you talk about her growing up um, poor, fairly poor and also quite happy. You refer to her as a Baptist deep within the Bible Belt, um, and of course, when she tells her mother she wants to be a nurse, her mother disapproves. When she's interested in Catholicism, her mother disapproves, and then, of course, also deciding to take up religious orders, her mother disapproves. But somehow, Mary ends up doing all of these things, and somehow, in the process, winning over her mother. Um, and I think we'll talk more about Mambayu later, but I think some of those same kind of characteristics of this tenacity and optimism and, and eventually sort of winning these I don't, these different kinds of victories in her lives. Like this is a pattern for her. How do you think she was shaped into that kind of a person? How, how is it that she was someone who could be sort of tough and also optimistic in the face of long odds and make it work and make it happen?
0: You know, I think part of it has to be her personality, you know, she was just born, born that way. She was also the only daughter in a family of I think she had like eight brothers or something, you know, so that's going to give you an edge. Yeah, she talks about her childhood yeah, as this sort of hard scrabble sort of existence, but as you said, very happy. Um and I think it probably, you know, imbued in her a certain sense of tenacity and independence and you know, resilience. Uh, I think one of the things that was you know interesting to me about those moments in her story that you mentioned, you know, and a lot of these folks uh, in this book, and you know you could you could include so many more stories in a book like this, they have key moments of conversion. and usually these these moments of conversion result in conflicts with their families or their you know their previous identities. So that seemed to me, you know, again, a characteristic of her life is that she it, she has all these conversions along the way, you know, one to becoming a nurse, you know, standing in the face of social disapproval from her mother, and then to become a Catholic, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, you know, Protestant space, boy, that's just really not done. And then to become, <laughs> to become a nun, oh my. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also clearly also had other family members around her who... You know, supported her in her vocation and her vision and her sense of self and, you know, gave her, you know, the sort of advice you get in families. Don't worry, we'll take care of your mother. You know, so it wasn't, you know, a lot of these people, we tell these stories as if they're a hero, a pioneer standing alone. Most of them are surrounded by communities of people who, of course, help them out. Uh, I think she also, the way she speaks of herself, she's also, she's very down to earth and she just, she has this sense of vision and vocation and who she is. And, you know, she just has patience and she's just going to stick it out. And she knows she has this kind of confidence that it'll work out. It'll be fine. I just have to sort of wait it out. And, you know, I don't think it was all easy, but she sort of has this sense of conviction that she's doing the right thing and she's got the right goal in mind. And then she's surrounded by people who help her out.
1: Yeah. So why Catholicism and why then become a sister? What do you think drew her to this faith and to this expression of faith?
0: Yeah, the way she tells it, you know, she hadn't encountered Catholicism prior to going to nursing school and getting uh, into beginning to practice nursing. And at first, she just thought it was really strange and it was kind of annoying cuz you know she was in this you know at the time nursing schools were kind of boarding schools you lived there uh, and so she was living in this sort of catholic hospital nursing school thing and was surrounded by catholic practices you know the nuns getting up early in the morning and you know singing the liturgy of the hours and it interrupted her sleep which she didn't really appreciate
1: mhm
0: but but over time she became intrigued by it i think she first became intrigued because of the witness she saw from the sisters who were nuns their dedication to their patients the way they cared for their patients the sort of grace that filled them and their interactions with their patients that was really interesting to her so over time she began to see the 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 community getting up to sing prayers in the morning as a beautiful thing right she began to see it wasn't just waking her up it was like Really lovely, right? And it attracted her. And things like holy water and blessing their hands and connecting. Uh, She did this really funny little prank experiment. I don't know what you want to call it. So in this nursing school, there was a holy water font, right? And you know, she's a Baptist. She's like, I don't know, holy water. What is that? Um, You know, some Catholic magical thing. And you know, and she would see the nuns, you know, dip their hands in the in the water and uh, you know cross themselves and whatnot. You know, and she was, you know, she's an empiricist. She was like, "Does that holy water really? Is it holy? Does it really do anything?" Like, you know, what what is that all about? So, so one night she went around and she changed and she put just regular water in the holy water founts, and she's like, "I want to see if they notice. I want to see if there's any difference." You know, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, "Oh, this is a great story." So, so she did this, right? And you know, the nuns didn't notice. They just kept doing their thing with what they thought was holy water. And she asked them, you know one of the nuns later, she's like, well, okay, I confess, I, I, I changed the holy water. There's, It's not holy, it's just regular water. Did you you know, talk to me about this? And, you know, the nun sort of laughed and said, well, you know, I really think that one of the, the thing that makes our hands holy is the care we give to these women. And we bring that holiness to the holy water, and then the holy wa- the water brings it back to the women, right? So she kind of connected it to the work. And that That story for Sister Mary Stella, I think was really important, right? Because it wasn't just some weird magical thing. It was, it was connected to all the work they were doing. And she began to see how grace worked in this really thickly disseminated way, how it was interwoven through everything they did. Um, And I think for her, it just, it just attracted her. I think one last thing I might add too is, you know, folks have this notion that being a nun, Being a sister is a very limiting sort of thing, right? It really constrains you. It, you know, puts these um, brackets on your life. But, But at that time, and maybe even still, you know, for many women, you know, in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, it was a way for them to be very independent. Right. This was a way for women to get an education, to get into leadership positions in places like hospitals where they would not otherwise be able to get into leadership positions, uh, to be able to move around the country. So there's a certain kind of freedom and independence in it that people often don't see. Uh, And I think and I think that was attractive to her, too.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that seems to make sense with her personality as it comes through on the page. So. Um, you alluded to some of this story, but I, I do want to ask a little bit about Santa Fe. So, um, Sister Mary Stella had been working as a nurse for 18 years. She's at the top of her game, well respected. And then her community sends her to Santa Fe in 1957. What happened in Santa Fe?
0: <laughs> well, more conversion. God. You know, you might say a whole bunch of things, you know, and that's another piece of uh, I don't think I wove this in as well as I possibly could into the the narrative of bringing in the kind of the biblical narrative into her story. But, you know, anyone who's read scripture knows that, you know, if you want change, you go to the desert and you might spend 40 days or you might spend, you know, <laughs>
1: 40, years. 40 years. Yeah.
0: But- yeah. You go to the desert and you have this conversion experience. Mm -hmm. So she goes to the desert and she gets down there and she's immediately immersed in a completely different approach to pregnant women um, and women who are are delivering their babies. Um, She had been coming from a hospital environment, and hospital environments, even to this day, you know, are very military, right? They're very hierarchical. They're very constrained. There's lots of rules. And and you know who's not in charge? The patient. If you've ever been to a hospital, you know that when you walk in, it's a scary place. There's all kinds of places you're not supposed to go. There's all kinds of, you know, thou shalt not enter signs. There's people who are clearly have authority and expertise, and you don't, right? Even today, you know, that's the message we get from hospitals, and it certainly was the case then and she was you know she was part of the power regime she was the one making the rules she was the one wearing the white coat or the habit you know uh, she was the one making sure the patients followed the rules and you know the rules were very strict about who could visit when and you know who was allowed in what room and all of this stuff so you know that's the world she had practiced in for 18 years or so and then she goes to santa fe and you know almost from the outset the women who are running the the Catholic Maternity Institute, which was the midwife school, almost immediately, they send out the students, two by two, again, so scriptural, to visit women in their homes. And this experience, for some reason, just shocked her, right? So she, you know, had to go to these people's houses. She had to knock on the door. She had to wait for them to invite her in, you know, right? Right. She, as a nurse, had to ask permission of these women to, you know, do stuff in their house. The mothers were the ones in charge in their homes. The mothers were offering her hospitality. And, you know, one of the phrases she uses, she's like, you know, you know, so in Santa Fe, she says, you talk about an eye opener. I almost had to have treatment for shock. (laughs) I mean, this was just, (laughs) this just rocked her world. Because in the hospital, you never ask patients for permission. You walk in, you tell them the way it is, whether they like it or not. You know, we're going to wake you up every two hours, whether you need it or not. Right. So this just completely inverted everything that she had thought was true, everything she had done. And actually, she felt like, you know, she had this crisis of, of identity. Like, what had she been doing for 20 years? She had been treating these women all wrong. Right so part of her year was you know coming to grips with this you know what she had done before it wasn't bad right but it she had the sense that it wasn't right right and she was now she was going to go out and she was going to change how everybody else did it because now she understood that the previous regime was just not right wasn't good for the patient wasn't good for mothers and babies wasn't good for families wasn't good for healthcare So it's a great story and I you know and it shows you have these two pieces of her. One, so she has this resilience, this stick to this goal-orientedness, right? She's not going to be held back from her vision, but she's also open to change, right? And, uh, and she's not afraid. She's not like bullheaded. And I think that's part of the beauty of her story is this process of discernment, which goes along with also having a strong sense of vocation. These things are connected.
1: So then, following her time in Santa Fe, your your chapter says she sort of she worked for nearly ten years, kind of as you referred to before, implementing this family centered maternity care hospitals all over the country, and you know, completely transforms maternal infant care in the United States. <laughs> um, and then at about age fifty seven, she goes to Mount Bayou, and I'd I'd love for you to to take us there by reading that um, first excerpt from your chapter if you have that. Sure.
0: On Monday, November 27, 1967, Sister Mary Stella Simpson wrote a letter to her sisters back home at her community in Evansville, Indiana. She wrote from Mound Bayou, Mississippi, where generations of African-Americans had often sung of the connections between their lives and those of the ancient Israelites. She wrote, Today was my first day for a home visit. I go on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, if possible we see all new obstetric patients in the home. This affords an opportunity to discover anyone else who lives in the home and needs health care. I started out with my guide and made five visits. On the very first one, I had to come back to town to get milk for a baby. He had finished his last bottle. It has gotten really cold, and the 14 people in that family all congregate in one room around a small wood-burning stove. I had to go through a front door which was like a deep freeze. The floor was slick with ice where water had been tracked in and then froze. The children were all barefoot, therefore they couldn't go to school. The parents have no way of getting shoes for them since they have no income. On this particular evening, Sister Mary Stella Simpson had been in Mound Bayou for a week. She had been called to help launch one of the most innovative experiments in health care for the poor in U.S. history, the Tufts Delta Health Center. Here, in 1967, this nurse midwife, who had previously pioneered radical changes in obstetrics care across the United States, turned to face the pharaoh of the Jim Crow South. The cruel oppression of slavery, at least in its most visible form, was a century behind the African-American people of Mississippi. A few decades earlier, a group of ex-slaves founded Mound Bayou, a nascent promised land that initially flourished economically, politically, and culturally. Yet the effects of the racialized politics, economics, and medicine of the mid-20th century had exceeded even Pharaoh's vision. When Sister Mary Stella arrived, Fifty-nine percent of all the babies born in Bolivar County, Mississippi, were dying every year, girls and boys alike. But as the story of Shipra and Pua attests, God works grace through those who defy the pharaohs of the world. The Israelites multiplied and grew very numerous. Sister Mary Stella, in her six years in Mound Bayou, never lost a baby.
1: Thank you. So, you write about some of the quiet and the not-so-quiet ways that Sister Mary Stella fought the Pharaoh of the Jim Crow South. Can you tell one or two of those stories?
0: Sure. One story she tells, you know, she goes to a house and there's these kids who are 11, 12, and 13 who had never been to school because they didn't have a birth certificate, right? So she just marches off to the principal of the elementary school and says, you know, these children should be in school. You know, and he's real nice. And, you know, he's like, oh, blah, 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 policy, blah, blah. I didn't make it up, blah, blah, blah. Right. But she persuades him that maybe this is a bad idea and that she should enroll, that they should enroll these people. You know, so, you know, she has a couple stories like that. Uh, she hears this story about another patient. You know, she goes to this patient's home and the the woman is waiting for, I forget what kind of check. I don't know if it was some sort of like food stamps check or she's waiting for some money and she needs the money to, you know, buy food and buy stuff for her kids. And the woman tells her, well, you know, the the post woman at the post office has this practice of she just sort of holds on to the checks of African-Americans and just doesn't really let them go. And of course, Sister Mary Stella is like, what? (laughs) So you know she goes and investigates and you know makes some contacts and you know calls a few people and a, and a month later she writes to her back to her community and she says remember that postmistress we reported for holding back welfare checks from black people she is now enjoying retirement
1: <laughs> nice <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then finally um, you know so these are just these these little these you know so they seem little but these these constant barriers that. Her families were running into all the time, so she, you know, she takes these on over six years, one by one by one. You know, then she encounters Jim Crow segregation in medical care, and that just really frosts every last cookie she has, you know. You know, they have segregated waiting rooms, they have segregated entrances, blacks only, whites only. You know, signs hanging above um, nurseries for black babies, nurseries for white babies. And, you know, she says, I thought, no, I haven't lived long enough to see this. You know, so she takes this on, you know, and sometimes she's really direct. You know, she calls government offices. You know. other times she's a little more indirect. There was a local clinic um, that, you know, had segregated signs, white entrance, black entrance signs. And she goes to the doctor and says, you know, you got to get rid of these signs. And he's like, hey not my clinic i just work here you know gives the sort of passive aggressive sort of response so you know she gives him a hard time so the next time she goes she just takes the signs down and takes them home <laughs> <laughs> and so you know next time she goes back she runs into this doctor again and uh, on purpose you know she goes to see him and he just laughs and he laughs and he laughs uh, and the signs never went back up <laughs> right you know so in her time there, she she really kept pressing against all of these little concrete instantiations of Jim Crow, and this is you know in 1970, right? This is this is now post civil rights, but it's still it's still going on. Um,
1: right, right. How do you think Sister Mary Stella is a witness that we need today?
0: On the one hand, she does her work. She just does her work. She does it excellently, but. She's a little known person, right? I mean, a lot of times people think I'm going to go change the world, right? And they want to make a difference. They want to make a difference immediately, and and they want to be known, right? But she just did her thing, uh, and we don't have a sense that just doing excellent work as a form of discipleship is a worthy goal in and of itself. That that's an, that's that that's the end. So I think she was not. In her little sphere, she was sort of high profile. You know, among nurse midwives, people knew who she was. But on a bigger stage, uh, she was not well known. And and for, that's the kind of discipleship most of us are called to because, you know, we're not going to be the Dalai Lama or whatever. Her openness to conversion, to having her preconceived notions of how to do her vocation, that's a lesson that we all need to learn. And here, because God calls us outside our comfort zone. I mean, if you read, if you read the scriptures, the people God calls, God, they're usually called outside their comfort zone. We could just go back to Moses, for example, right? You know, so God calls Moses and Moses is like, you got the wrong person. <laughs> right? Let me give you the 10 reasons I am not the right person for this job. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do the other thing. And God says, good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're the one. And, you know, there's story after story after story like that. Uh, so, you know, maybe most of the time, you know, if it's really a call, it's something that's outside of our comfort zone, right? It's calling us to be converted to a whole new way of being. But I think that's not often part of our narrative. I think part of what we need to hear in her story, too, is that this work is the work of communities and groups of people. We don't ever do this alone. You know, we like to tell stories of heroes. And heroes are rugged individualists standing alone, changing the world. And she changed the world, but she didn't do it by standing alone. And I think, you know, just one of the things I love reading in her in her story is her, just her constant sense. This is, you know, before she goes, to, even before she goes to Santa Fe and before she goes to Mount Bayou, is she is energized by the time she spends with poor women in poor communities, you know, she learns a lot. She gains a lot. She loves those relationships. She finds grace there. Her, you know, it's not this unidirectional sense of service, I'm going to take care of these people. You know, she has this very thick sense that, you know, because she enters into relationship with them, and part of it's how she does it, right? She, She meets them literally where they are in their houses. And by doing that, she begins to see the texture of their whole life, its positives and its negatives. She enters into relationship with them. She builds relationship with them. And she just, she gets so much joy from that. And that sustains her work. I think that's something that is a message we need to hear.
1: Yeah. How do you think you've been changed by spending so much time with Sister Mary Stella?
0: Um, mostly that latter point, right? Trying to figure out, ooh, ooh, how do I change my social location so that I can do that? That, you know, is a challenge for us because a lot of us don't have the freedom, independence, autonomy that a nun has to just up and go, you know, move to the middle of nowhere in Mississippi. So, You know, I feel like there's some call there that I need to figure out how to wrestle with. I could use a a year in the desert. I don't know that I'm going to get that, but that would, you know, probably be helpful.
1: Yeah. 40
0: days? (laughs) I would take 40 days. 40 days would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's been just a a really different kind of project for a person like me, partly. You know, you've given me this opportunity to spend like two years with this person. You know, I feel like I know her. And I just haven't really entered into the story of a particular person in that way before, it, you know, in order to sort of tell it to the world, witness it to the world. But I, it, it's just been a great process to do that. It's just been really wonderful to, to get to know her. And I feel like she's just like, like, uh, like I know her, like she's a friend of mine now. And I even went to Mound Bayou, like this was, this was transformative for me. I had never been to Mississippi. Uh, So, going to Mississippi and walking around where she was, looking at it as it is today, that was a very powerful experience for me.
1: Yeah. So, I'd like to close by having you read the excerpt about miracles, which I love. That would be great.
0: This comes at the end of the chapter. Sister Mary Stella loved the people of Mound Bayou, loved the work, and certainly loved bringing joy, grace and a little bit of God's righteous justice every so often. My only regret, she said later, is that I didn't stay young long enough to do it forever. I was happy to go to Mound Bayou because it was such a challenge. It was marvelous. I learned more about pediatrics there than I ever learned in school. But most of all, I learned about faith. I never had to spread the gospel to the people there. In spite of all their hardships, their faith in God was unshakable. I think God was with me all the way, because I didn't really have to sit down and think about what to do next. In her six years with the Tufts Delta Health Center, she never lost a baby or a mother. Nor did she during her year in El Carmen, Texas. These outcomes are nothing short of astonishing seeming to defy the laws of biology or poverty or reality, how could one woman with her team make such a difference? We hear stories of astounding healings in scripture or in the stories of the saints, healings that are referred to as miracles. Generally, We enlightened modern readers dismiss such stories as exaggerations, myths, or hagiography. But in the case of Sister Mary Stella, we know that the story is true. Does the fact that we might know the mechanism, these dedicated women seeking out the poor in their homes, being present with them as persons with dignity, connecting them with health care and attending to the social determinants of health, Do these factors make it any less of a miracle? Or is this how grace actually works in the
1: world? Therese, thank you so much. It's been so much fun to talk with you and hear about Sister Mary Stella, and I can't wait to share it with the world.
0: Me too. So it's been so great to talk with you again.
1: Can I Get a Witness? The podcast is a production of the Project on Lived Theology at the University of Virginia, a research initiative whose mission is to study the social consequences of theological ideas for the sake of a more just and compassionate world. To learn more about Lived Theology, visit livedtheology.org or find us on social media. This podcast is produced, edited, and engineered by Jessica Seibert and written, edited, and hosted by me, Shea Tuttle, original music is by drew wilson special thanks to project director charles marsh the book can i get a witness 13 peacemakers community builders and agitators for faith and justice is edited by charles marsh Shay tuttle and daniel p rhodes it's published by Urbans publishing company and is available now thank you for listening to can i get a witness the podcast